Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Weekly Word Podcast. I'm Chris Hout, AIM Coach, and this is episode 101. And within this episode, we are going to dive right back into training talk, questions, technique, insights, mindset, the physical approach to um, our training, the mental approach to our training, and of course, when I get sidetracked on the spiritual approach to our training. I'm seeing more and more feedback and insights and learning and reading about how that last component is always present in our training. And I find it interesting that more and more athletes are reaching out because they feel that insight, they feel that deeper connection to themselves, they realizes, realizes, they realize that this is about the experience, this is about the journey, this is about the time for ourselves, this is about their, their um, opportunity every day to spend a little time with themselves and being intentional and being focused for that and actually looking forward to it, setting up their day for this type of time for themselves. The beauty of ultra endurance athletics is that you're never in a hurry. Nothing gets done fast. Occasionally, we have high-quality workouts. Occasionally, we have strength work. We have different types of intensity or specific workouts that require a prescription or intervals or a certain type of workload. But a lot of times during the week, we have an opportunity to just go out and run, just go out and ride, or just go and swim brain off. And the beauty of brain off is that it actually turns brain on. It lights it up in, all the, in the far corners that don't get utilized during the day, that, don't, that aren't part of our usual super highway of connectivity. Super highway of connectivity, meaning our brain goes into this what I've been learning about the default mode network and where how it applies different segments of our brain most of the time. But when our creative side uh, comes alive, when our creative side starts um, opening up, it means that we actually shut down that default mode network and it allows the other parts of our brain to light up. And that's what endurance training allows. That's why when you're out there in the woods running or in the mountains running or in the fields or forests running, and after 20, 30 minutes, parts of your mind expand and open up that you haven't had those thoughts in a day or two or three or five since you've had an opportunity to go out and train like this and just let go, turn the the noisy brain off and allow the quiet brain to come on, come online, as they like to say. And the same thing can happen cycling, and the same thing can happen swimming, and the same thing can happen rowing, and the same thing can happen, happen while we're meditating, or while we're hiking, or while we're rucking, or while we're climbing, or while we're SUPing, or uh, while we're just walking along the beach ruminating all those little things are just many different ways where we shut down the main part of our brain the part that gets used all day long for cognitive focused thinking but those are usually repetitive motion type of thinking not that require deeper thought reflective thinking creative output in order to do that effectively we have to turn that super highway of high use off and allow the other parts of our brain to light up. And that's what 
endurance training is, I believe. I believe in more and more literature that I'm coming across, of course, because I'm now so focused about it and I'm looking for it and I'm reading about it and it's coming across my radar more and more, right? It's the same thing if you're in the market to buy a watch, all of a sudden you notice watches everywhere, not just because Google knows, but also because your eyes and your brain know what they do with watches and all kinds of different things. So that's why um, I talk a lot about that spiritual aspect, not because of any type of mystical, religious, deeper meaning to it, but more because I believe there's a benefit. There's a best version of ourselves waiting for us within that. And the fact that we're able to light up more of our brain and take advantage of all the 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 powers that our brain and our creative thinking and our, um, um, our our mind can give us, I think that is another benefit of this training. So, yeah, so we're going to dive into a bunch of emails, obviously, with the 100th episode and a variety of different delays with the Qatar Quest and so forth. I have a lot of emails that have built up, so I want to bump into, bump into, I want to knock a bunch of those out. I don't know how I got to bump into there. And I also want to follow up on the next steps of the 50K training plan. So that's in there today. And from there, we'll just see where this podcast takes us because I love doing this podcast and just talking endurance training, physical, mental, and spiritual, and all the things that come with it from a nutrition standpoint, fueling, hydrating, day-to-day nutrition, understanding our body better, and how to optimize it. Yes, big buzzword, optimize. Optimize it so that you can maximize the limited training time that you have. Because as I say, every episode, you went pro in something other than athletics and other than this endurance sports. And so we want to maximize the limited training time we have, but we also want to maximize our curiosity of what we believe we can be as endurance athletes. I spoke to an athlete this morning and we talked a little bit about coaching and what it means and why I do it. And part of it is that I truly believe that when we start this training, we open new doors and what we then consider as possible is completely different than when we started the training. And that we then have these different, not expectations, visions of what we can do and achieve. So, for example, in the running world, right? Let's say, oh, I want to try a trail half marathon. But as the training progresses and as I take the athlete beyond a trail marathon, half marathon in training, they start thinking, well, I can do a marathon. I can do a 50K right? And once you've started training and done and completed and felt good for a 50k, 30 miles, 31, 32 miles, now you start thinking, well, down the road, maybe there's a 50 miler reality. And all this started back with getting ready for a half marathon on trails. And it goes quickly in six, eight, nine months. Next thing you know, you're thinking of a 50 miler of a 10 plus hour event and run. But again, I believe that as we get fitter, as we get into the consistent training, as we stay healthy, as we regenerate, rebuild, revive ourselves, recover to become better, fitter, stronger versions of ourselves, it opens those new doors. And that curiosity gets sparked. Well, what can I do? 
what's on the far end of this reality for me? And can I go beyond that and create a new normal, a new reality for me? Endurance training. That's what it is. That's that version of ourselves that can really trickle into so many aspects of our lives. And so that is what we're going to dive into on episode 101. Thank you guys for joining me on this. This is going to be fun. More training tips, more um, training approach, more just X's and O's today. So here we go. I just read an email from one of the training logs that talks about when swimming with regards to average pace and not feeling good about the workout after because um, the athlete saw that their average pace for the swim was low or slow, as they said. And so this prompted me, of course, to have some serious commentary around it because swim practice can be very much compared to a track workout. And when you see some world-class track athletes that um, meander to the track, um, whether it's NCAA, whether it's top high school athletes, whether it's Olympians, whether it's professionals, they take their time, they save their energy, they meander to the track. They do a couple laps of easy jog, joke around, talk with their multi, um, um, mutual friends and other athletes. Then they sit in the infield and stretch and just have a good time in the sun or relax. They still have their sweats on, not asking their body to do any type of work. Do you think those athletes after the workout look at their average pace for the track workout um, based off of all the sitting around and all the resting and all the um, cajoling with other athletes? No, of course not. And neither should swimming be. You have rest on the walls. You have specific intervals. You have an easy 200 here. You have recovery 50s. You have time where you should be doing nothing at the walls, resting, relaxing. What does average pace have anything to do with the workout and with any type of input that you would evaluate? This is why I don't like watches during the swim practice. Instead, I would recommend thinking it of the set itself. So when you do download that watch after the swim practice and look at your performance for that training session, look at what you did during, let's say, the 8-100s or the 400 steady or the main set and the speeds you held or alternated with. The value there, too, is that you start understanding outside of the pool what intervals you might use in the pool for your send-off. And we've talked a lot about send-off versus rest intervals. And just as a quick refresher, remember, in swimming, it's very important to know your intervals. So that is your ability to push off the wall at a certain interval time. So if you typically swim hundreds around 127 to 132, let's say, for the 100, then you should probably be doing 100 send-off intervals at 145 interval. So you get 10 to 12 to even 15 seconds rest. And if you up the effort, you get a little bit more rest. If you slow down the effort, you get a little bit less rest. If you have an aggressive set where you're only doing three or four or five 100s, maybe you bring that interval down to 140. But 
knowing your intervals is going to help you swim better, a quality workout, get the proper interval and stimulus and outcome of that swim practice versus this overall big picture average pace, which means nothing to your swimming quality. It means nothing for you to figure out how you'll do in a triathlon or an open water swim. Because again, that resting and stopping and focus on doing the individual sets accurately is way more important than seeing what your overall average time pace is for the entire workout. So think of that next time you think of your swimming approach and how you're going to go into the pool with intention and clarity and purpose in mind. All right, let's continue on the emails and questions and knowledge theme for today. Dear Chris, thank you so much for your type of podcast. So many are just interviews of athletes, which can all be the same, but love how you just answer the regular athlete questions and not at the elite level. It has helped me so much as I am a beginner. Yeah, that's what this podcast is also really about. There's a lot of athlete interviews out there, and there's also a lot of podcasts out on how the elites or the business leaders or the best do it. But, you know, in many cases, the elites and the best, their lifestyle and their opportunities and their schedules is allows them to do things quite differently. As well as their talent level and their years of experience in the sport, it's hard to apply that. You know, I joked with Rich last week, like we can't all be David Goggins because his background on who he is and how he suffered and his abilities and his knowledge and his training and his support system of having been in a variety of different circumstances and um, preparatory camps and special programs in order to all harden and prep him for that. Plus, this is what he does. And so same thing with a professional athlete or an elite athlete or this person there or this business leader there. Yes, I agree. I love many of the podcasts because I believe there's tidbits you can pull from it. But for me, it's more important on how the working athlete, how the working mom, how the busy um, professional uh, working athlete is doing it and how they're fitting it in and so forth and the questions and the things that they struggle with. And that's what I try to answer on this podcast. So I love these emails where I can dive into that. And the other part that I really enjoy is just helping athletes become a little bit better version of their athletic self. And I know that's part of my bigger mission and so forth. But these little tidbits that you can remember when you go into your next training session and observe how it works for you, that's all I look for. That's what's important to me. So back to the email. I'm 39, mother of four kids, 10, 9, 6, and 3. Whoa, you are busy. (laughs) 10, 9? How'd that work? 10 and 9. Well, um, and this has been the start of my second year in triathlon. Last summer, I completed my first sprint and Olympic, and this summer, I'm training for a 70.3. Awesome. I love the endurance part of doing triathlons, but as my kids are so young, holding off doing the full Ironman and other races until my kids are a bit older. Great call. But with um, 
two 13-year-olds and two 10-year-olds, I'll tell you, it doesn't get any less busy. <laughs> it, gets, it gets quite a busier, a different type of busy, but you're stuck shuttling kids all the time everywhere. Um, my question is, two years ago, I did CrossFit to build my strength and decided to start tries. Last summer, I was self-coached and was sore all the time, so this year I did get a coach for my 70.3. Nice work. I haven't been doing strength CrossFit for the last three months because my coach doesn't want me to do any. I do 10 minutes once a week of 40 squats, 20 lunges, 20 step ups, 20 squat jumps, all done with body weight. Um, I have been experiencing pain in my arch in the arches of my feet and now my knee. My knee hurts when I cycle and climb steps. Maybe it's that I'm doing too much, but I feel it's like the lack of mus building muscle. All right, let me dive into that before I even read the rest. So the danger there is the 40 squats, 20 lunges, 20 step ups, and 20 squat jumps all done with body weight. You're basically doing endurance leg work, and that's not strength. Please understand that strength, in order to grow strength, to get stronger, we need a different type of stimulus. 40 squats, 20 lunges, 20 step ups, and 20 squat jumps is good for durability, but it's not taking the muscular structure that you have and making it stronger. It is a, it is too much of repetitions and they just put you in the same space that cycling running already does. When you're sitting on your bike and your hands are on the crossbar road bike or on the pads tri bike, you're basically in the same seated squat position as you would be doing for 40 squats. When you're doing 20 lunges, it's very much mimicking the running motion or running uphill motion that you're already doing. So all you're doing with those exercises there is repeating volume, high repetitions, um, that you already do in your training. So if you want to focus on strength or do a strength workout, have the purpose and intention and clarity for that workout to truly get stronger. You don't need to do 40 squats. Instead, do four or five or six to failure. Not failure where you're not doing it clean, but four to five to six where you're doing it um, that you're barely able to do it clean, do it sustainable, barely do it so that you remain good to form. But again, upping that weight and upping the load and upping the stress on the muscles, that's what makes you stronger. Clearly, you have the motions and the fitness and the durability down to ask your body to do that because you've been doing these reps. Um, so again, strength is a different component that many overlook, many underestimate what it truly entails. And that's why when I talk about strength here on the podcast and with many of my athletes, I always try to clarify there's a difference between strength and just maintenance of doing similar motions and exercises. That is a waste of our time. Doing high rep, low weight frequency is something we don't need to be doing. Why? Because we're already spending so many hours a week with regards to endurance training on the load of the body of what it's already doing, mimicking with these exercises. So I would be clear on your intention and purpose with this training that what you're doing is not helping you 
That being said, you're experiencing pain in my arches of my feet. That might be a shoe question. That might be um, a volume question. And now on my knee, which might be a bike fit question, which might be an IT band question. My knee hurts when I cycle. That is often a bike fit question on how you're set up on your bike and climb steps. Well, that's often the IT band insertion point above the knee, um, patella. So those are different things. And surely some of the IT band issues could be coming up because of those 40 squats, 20 lunges, 20 step ups, 20 squat jumps. That's too much. It's just repeating more. And then uncertainty, not uncertainty, instability in the landing of those squat jumps. Is it going down too far with regards to already being on a fatigued muscle from running and biking, right? So again, it gets very um, hazy, very foggy here on where the benefits are versus the um the risks, and you can see the risks. I've asked my coach a couple of times if I if doing more strength with weights, but she keeps telling me no. She's giving me a break and doing zone two, easy running, but I feel like I'm doing the same repetitive movements over and over, and that I need to be strong all over. I don't want to offend my coach, but also don't want to damage my body getting older. Well, you're 39, okay, anymore, and want to be able to do endurance sports for a long time. So first off, the mother of four kids, um, the things you need to be working on, in my opinion, and what I have all my women working on that have many, have had many kids, even not that recently, there's a rebuild process of you as a woman after having born four children in that time window. We would want to make sure that that part of your body is strong and able to withstand the training. Um, and there's a variety of um, pelvic floor, Pilates, strength work that you can be doing to address that. So that's something that's very important in general for you. Um, the second piece is my advice as you ask here, what is your advice on strength, CrossFit, how many times per week should they be big days so I can recover the next day? Um, this depends on the rest of your training plan. This depends on the length of when your 70.3 is and if you're planning to move through that 70.3 to the Ironman distance, a big component there. But yes, you guys, you guys have all heard from me. I am a, a big um, subscriber to strength work. I fully believe that it has a place in our training, in our training phases and training cycles. But there's a variety of components that play into that. And this applies to everybody from the elite, elite athletes to the beginners. And one is maximizing the limited training time we have, right? We all went pro in something other than sports. So if we only have eight or nine or 10 hours a week, what is the maximum use of that limited time? And if strength doesn't fit in that, if we have plenty of strength on our body and we're doing the right training, on the bike, big gear work, spin-ups, standing intervals, climbing. Then we're already strengthening the muscles that we have already as well because that ties into those the, the high repetition, low resistance work that we're doing that, that I talked about earlier with 40 squats, 20 lunges, 20 so, so on a bike, if you do a 10-minute climb, 15-minute climb, well, 
at 50 RPM a minute, 10 minutes, that's 500 repeats at a, a wattage, a resistance, a workload that is providing strength. Similarly for running, similarly for swimming and paddles and stuff like that. So we want to think about maximizing limited training time and how strong you currently are based off of testing and based off of training inputs and data. We can see if strength is a limiter. If strength is currently not a limiter, I also wait on strength until the training phases allow for it. Let's get you through your first 70.3. See where our limitations are. See if strength is a limiter. See if there's some easy gains to be had there and then build from there. So I definitely play around with the strength at different times for the training zones and so forth. And then finally, you can be doing strength all the time, but it's more a question of um, how it how it progresses you towards that initial goal. Now, if we do see strength as a limiter and you do need a fair amount of strength work, is it one time a week? We got to see how that adapts into your training. Are you uploading, absorbing, adapting to the current training that we are working towards your A goal in the first place, right? So it becomes a very personal question on how it works. But for you right now, what I would keep in mind is a few things. One, how you're training past the 70.3 and what the bigger picture is for you and that athlete. And secondly, is strength a limiter? And also addressing that knee pain, that uh, arch pain, as well as rebuilding your body post four children like you've had. So I know that's a lot, but I hope that it gives you enough input and ideas on what to look for for the next four to six months, but I would surely stay away from the 10 minutes once a week. That's just added added load on your body and those tired legs, which I have a feeling are um, interfering with your ability to properly recover, allow those IT bands and so forth to do what they need to do, as well as look at bike fit and so forth. So, Yes, you should be doing strength, but you want to make sure that it applies directly to you, your outcomes, and your long-term growth. So I hope that helps. All right, next email. Um, Hi, Chris. I have a question about the five times one mile test to determine running fitness. Is it still worth doing if I don't have a track or similar location near me? My local track is closed at the moment, and it's been a while since I tested, several months at least, so I know I should do it soon. Would it be worth to do if it's less than ideal test for now? Or should I wait at least another month and do on a proper track? Um, decent question. Uh, you know, I would wait because... Uh, you would want to do a test is only as good as it can be replicated. And sorry for sort of that vagueness of the start of the answer. But the reason I like the five by one mile test is that it can, if you have a local track or a local location to do it reliably every eight weeks, 10 weeks, that's the ideal. That way you can repeat it. Um, also lock in at a certain heart rate. Like I have a lot of my athletes do a follow-up test at a, a certain heart rate based off of the, the original test. 
And I like to see that, oh, with, let's say it's upper zone three, low zone four approximately, but it depends on their five um, one mile repeat heart rates so that we can lock in a number that's repeatable, but that doesn't go to like 95%. So I look for it to be more like 87 to 90% effort. So taking that heart rate range, which is then usually within three to four beats, right? I say, okay, in six weeks, let's do five times one mile at that exact tight heart rate, the one that I determine. And then we'll another six weeks later and another six weeks later, or even in shorter gaps, four weeks later. And to show them that at a steady heart rate at the same location under similar conditions, right? It's not a lab. Um, they continue to drop their mile times whilst <laughs> holding the same heart rate. And so that's why I would say for this question, I would try to repeat, uh, do the test where it's repeatable for many. Um, so for a summer, given that you're in the Northern Hemisphere, that you can do it from, let's say, April to November or April to October, repeat that test. Um, again, not every month, but I would say the five times one mile best effort, 95% 10K effort, I would do that maybe um, every two months, two and a half months, maybe. You could even do it every three months. That's plenty to, to update your training zones, to update those numbers, to see what your threshold is. So I would wait in this case. All right, let's keep knocking these out. Chris, thank you so much for your message and the work you do. I listen to you and Rich Roll so often that I feel I personally know you. Your words on using endurance racing as a way to improve our connection with nature and our relationships have inspired me toward a more fulfilling and happy life. That's awesome. Thank you. Just wanted to know that you're really making an impact in people's lives. Thank you. Well, that is a great, great compliment, and I really appreciate that. Okay, on to the question. My grandfather had two knees replaced and my dad had one knee replacement. They were both extremely healthy men. Running is my biggest passion in life, but I worry that the state of my joints especially needs, and I've heard that long distance running is bad for the body, especially leading to issues later in life. Are these myths? Is there anything I can do to improve the longevity of my body or avoid deteriorating my body as I age? P.S. On a more individual note, thinking about starting a podcast. Oh, that's separate. Um, well, this is really simple, actually. One, consistently doing the running will help your joints and ligaments and your legs stay strong, especially the knees, which carry a lot of impact of the lower body. Um, remember, 40 times your body weight when you're running. So a lot of that goes into the heel and the joints around the um, ankle moves up your shin and lower leg and into the knee. So the knee isn't quite taking 40 times as much, but still quite a load. But so durability and consistency surely help with that. I would say strength training and staying strong in that area, stable. Um, um, also side to side will be important so that you don't pull something, do some damage on an awkward side movement or when you land bad as we age and those connections aren't as strong maybe as they used to be. Um, and so the other aspect there too is by do running on softer surfaces, 
and trail running and um, forest running and staying off concrete. Number one, stay off of concrete. The biggest issue that runners face is running on concrete. It destroys us. It's so non-forgiving and it's such a bad surface for our body and the limbs to land on. Even asphalt is better than that. But think about increasing the time that you're on surfaces that aren't as jarring and as um, that pull so much energy from your impacting foot. It all goes into the concrete and nothing gets returned, right? I would also start thinking about if this is an issue. Yes, for you, the cushion shoes are good, but not all the time. Again, like I've said in the past, you want to continue to maintain a strong knee, a strong legs, strong hips. And in order to do that, you also have to stress it, stress it with impact and um, strain from running on hard surfaces and asking it to do the work. An interesting side note here is that most people, if they run barefoot, land way softer than when they run in their shoes, right? And so if you go running barefoot down the street, you're not heel striking and landing as hard as when you run with shoes. It's just because your body automatically protects itself. But notice what that stride is. Notice how you're landing. Notice how you're running. Notice how you're leaning and upright and your core is engaged and your hip placement and so forth. It's a great drill to do. In the summer, I often take off my shoes and run at the track. Not a lot, but part of my warm-up to re-engage, to fire the chain, to teach my mind and my body and all the connections in between that I want to remind them this is how I want to land. This is the stride I want to hold. This is how I want to run. Oftentimes I do my strides barefoot. Again, to bring up that leg speed for all the benefits of strides, but then doing it barefoot and connecting to the earth and feeling that in my feet and turning over like that with light feet because you don't have the weight of the shoes on them anymore. feels amazing. All these little things can help you. Again, staying consistent with your running and also staying consistent with what it should feel like. Then of course, you could also do some other activities or um, take some other um, actions in order to ensure that you're constantly on top of it. Have your doctor or a good physical therapist maintain a range of motion, maintain strength of that area. And there's many ways they can test that to make sure that the knee is tracking right and staying strong. So no, that is a myth, but again, right? Myths have a kernel of truth in them. And so if you have a family history of knee issues, stay ahead of the game, stay on top of it, and try to take all these things that I've mentioned and build them into your repertoire, your arsenal of how to combat, a lot of military jargon there, um, what might be coming. And so do I believe that we can run in, way into our 70s? Yes, absolutely. But again, we can't start in our 50s and start doing ultra distances. We got to gradually build up the durability, gradually build up the tolerances, gradually build up the strength for all this. So I would surely add a variety of different components of that too.
body weight strength. Many of my athletes know that I really like uh, blasters, full leg blasters and mini blasters. Again, good for tracking, good for creating our own strength, good for stability, good for core, good for bounciness and explosiveness. A lot of the running revolves around that bounce and that um, flexion in our feet and ankles. Which brings me right into the next email here. Hi, Chris. Love the podcast and taking you up on the offer to answer questions. Like you, I'm a coach and an endurance athlete. Also, like you, I instruct a few cycling classes each week. Wondering how you personally approach your cycling classes, if you ride them at zone two while coaching participants to go harder, or if you also hit them hard. Well, um, I no longer teach cycling classes, but when I did for many, many years, I think I taught for 15 years, probably, but um, I did ride them with intention and focus and a strong effort and because I felt it was important that athletes in the classroom also could see my effort and the workload that I'm putting forth at the intensities that I'm prescribing. And so if I'm fatiguing, if I'm out of breath, if I'm sweating and struggling or working through something pretty hard, it prompts them to think, well, why is my effort not hard? Or why is my effort harder than what he's doing? And so that we can at least have a conversation around that and understand where the difference is and why it's applying differently to the athlete or to me. But also, I, I like the quality of a good cycling class. It allows the flexibility to do the quality and intensity and the focused work, cadence and strength and big gear work and standing and tempo intervals in a fixed set environment, measurable environment, consistent environment. And then on the weekends or the longer rides, just being steady zone two riding, brain off and just building cycling economy, just keeping the pedals turning, not a lot of coasting, not a lot of stopping, building truly endurance in that respect. Um, how you approach yourself. So maybe that was the question with how I approach them. If you also hit them hard, how do you work that into your own training problem program to ensure you're not overdoing it with too many hard sessions during the week. Well, for the last few years, I've only been teaching class once a week. And uh, most of those years, though, I prior years, I taught twice a week. Twice a week was plenty. Um, I also made sure that I warmed up. And most of my athletes did that too. Those that were the athletes, my athletes in those classes, um, I was very similar with them and they understood what I was looking for with regards to a long warm-up. The first 30 minutes of the 90-minute class were basically warm-up. We would do a variety of short burst intervals and stuff to get the heart rate elevated, but nothing that's fatiguing or lasting any type of um, long recovery needs. And then we would do about 50 minutes of focused interval work, um, sets and so forth. So, and that twice a week, you know, that that what ends up being, let's say, after the 30-minute warm-up, an hour of quality twice a week, that's two hours compared to the other, um, you know, eight to 10 hours of cycling a week. So I would average about eight to 10 hours of cycling a week back then. And so two of those hours were quality, that's still less than um, 20%. So maybe even 25%. So plenty of um, time still to go zone two and go aerobic and not overdo it. And um, 
Yeah, I was never in much concern of doing too much quality because of all the volume I did at zone two and over many, many years of training of not having enough quality in my training because I did so much zone two aerobic low heart rate work. My biggest training effects came and still do come once I add some quality to it. Even now getting ready for Alaska Man and um, a, a sort of a race, I don't know how much of a race that will be, but that being said, if I insert quality into my training, it quickly has um, effects. Um, performance boosting effects. Now, it also leaves me a lot more fatigued and a lot more um, achy um, on a, from a muscular standpoint. But that's when I know I'm moving into the right area with doing quality, intentional, focused workouts. Um, not overdoing it with too many hard sessions. I currently do almost all my other training in zone two, exactly. Creep into zone three and four on two of my cycle classes. Well, there you go. Actually, I would push you to go further. I would stay away from too much zone three in the classes, which I did, and use, and use the classes to really push the envelope and go zone four, zone five, even higher VO2 max intervals because by creating that clear difference, it allowed the time on the road and the rest of the time to truly be relaxed. You wanted it mentally and physically to go that easy because the cycling class tax cycling classes, in my case, I had cycling class taxed you that much. I currently do my cycling intervals indoors as well. Um, on a similar day, a week, a week Wednesdays. And um, not only do I do it in order to go through the motions and the experience of that intensity that for the intervals I send out to my athletes every week so that I know what they felt like and can connect with it and having done a dry run or test of it. But again, also to gradually bring up the intensity every um, week. And it's, it's hard. I'm, I'm uncomfortable doing it. And it's been a slower process than in the past where I'm gradually bringing myself up to four. And I've definitely not touched zone five yet. So um, it's a process. But if you can go to four and five, that would be better and spend less time in three. I would move through three to get to four and five and above, but not use three for much anything else. Now come race season and you're looking to do, you know, if this is for triathlon, I don't see that in there. Endurance, I'm a coach and endurance athlete, so that's I don't. It doesn't say if you're a triathlete. Um, what I would consider there then is, as you're getting closer to race season and your event, yes, you do need to do some steady zone three tempo work in order to have that uh, performance outcome and get used to the aero position, for example, in a triathlon and holding a steady wattage and being focused on your position and within your mind, not with the stimulus of the road and the surroundings and other riders and the cars. Trainers are great for that. If you can zone out like some of the elites that the YouTube videos seem to show us a lot of these days in, by just sitting there on a trainer for three hours or four hours like some of them do, eyes closed, just sweating away, that's pretty intense. But it does make you mentally quite strong so that when you are racing and all the different stimuli come your way, it makes that four hours on a bike for them, that's how their Ironmans go, four hours, um, go by a lot quicker. So... Um, 
zone three, four, or two of my cycle classes, then usually hit it pretty hard zone five during one other class. So it sounds like you're doing a third class a week. That might be a bit much <clears throat> if you're doing a fair amount of riding outside. So you might just be a cyclist. I'm not sure what sport you do, although you're in, um, your email seems to indicate you're a runner. Um, anyway, um, three cycling classes is pushing it, and I think you've felt that um, or should have felt that, that there's days where you're sort of just flat, and uh, those are the days we want to avoid in general. All right, next email. Wow, um, I'm getting through a bunch here. I can't forget the time for the 50K training plan. 43 minutes, so we're okay. Hi, Chris. First, can I please say I love the podcast. I want to thank you. You really pour your heart into every episode. Well, thank you. The podcast has really helped me a lot. I'm 46 and have been doing mountaineering objectives for about 12 years now. I just got back from Antarctica and clearly feel the strongest I ever after listening to your podcast and doing almost all zone one, zone two work, 99.9999% of the time. Um, by the way, there is also too easy. Um, I do not want to spread this concept that zone one is okay. Um, a lot of my athletes know that I don't even use the term zone one. To me, that's just easy. That's no heart rate. That's no focus. And it's just not a um, beneficial training stimulus, zone one. That is truly recovery. And in many cases, many coaches and many athletes will argue, and I don't necessarily disagree with them. I think there's a place for it. But that going that easy, you might as well not train. And uh, there's, there's parts of me that can argue for and against that. So for all of you, know that zone one is, a, is not really a good place to be. It is something where you go out after, let's say you had a hard track workout this morning, or you had a hard cycling workout this morning, or you had a hard swim workout this morning, or you had a long training day the day before. To go out and shake it out at zone one, an easy spin, let's say on a trainer, just to, to not have to deal with rolling terrain or, or any type of interruptions, or a very easy jog on a canal path or tow path or something like that at zone one, just to loosen up and get the blood flowing. That's where I think you could quantify it as a zone one. But instead, I wouldn't even want to use that number. Instead, I would just say easy and brain off and just go for a run and don't overthink it. Don't look at heart rate. Don't even bring heart rate. Just run really relaxed and light and easy. That, that's the zone one space to me. Because keep in mind, zone two, there's, there is a floor to zone two. And if we don't keep it up in zone two, we are actually not helping the stimuli as much either. Now, of course, there's a benefit. But again, our whole maxim here is that we want to maximize the training, the limited training time we have. And by going too easy, we're also not having maximizing that limited time. Now, I've often talked about you can't do any damage going too easy, but you can do you can limit your progress by going a tick too hard. That is true. And so, yes, you can't do any damage going at zone one. But again, it's not the most effective use of your limited training time. So keep that in mind. I bought a standardized 24-week training plan off the guys at Uphill Athlete, which is a great site, by the way. Those guys um, really know, Steve House and them really know what they're doing. 
um, real good uh, coaching and training um, platform for mountaineering and um, also a great blog and um, information and educational stuff there. So that's the uphill athlete. And really found the confidence to train Z1, Z2 from listening to your podcast during my training. The way you approach training really resonates me. Thank you. Do you do any coaching with people planning long mountaineering expeditions, 800 meter peaks, Everest, etc.? Well, I think I pulled up a question that I didn't really need to put on the podcast, but we got that zone one workout discussion out of it. Um, yes, I do. I do. I have, um, as many of you have heard on the podcast, I'm coaching somebody to Everest this year. Um, he's going to do a September ascent, um, which is pretty cool on the back end of the season. The season opens in May and ends on the back end of September. So um, that's been fun working through getting him aerobically fit for that. Um, and I've learned a lot in that process about how mountaineering is actually no different than any other um, endurance episode, uh, episode, endurance activity, um, adventure expedition. Um, your ability to uptake oxygen efficiently, your durability, your chassis integrity, your strength component, your cognitive um, um, awareness and your freshness and your mental strength and your spiritual connectiveness, all that ties in in mountaineering. And um, yeah, it's, it's a very translatable experience and very um, similar type of coaching plan. Now, of course, these are for guided. Um, if, if the athlete themselves are doing the guiding themselves, as well as setting ropes, as well as doing, well, nobody sets ropes. The, the, um, the first team up sets the ropes of the season, and it's usually drawn upon about from a variety of teams, and then the Sherpas play a big role in that. But that being said, um, yes, plenty of that. Um, uh, some South American peaks, a couple of 22,000 meter peak, uh, 22,000 feet foot peaks, and um, up to 23. This is my first Everest, um, Denali. Uh, what else have I done? Akangawa. Um, trying to think. Um, oh, Lotz in uh, also in the Himalayas, Lotzi. So there's a variety of peaks and mountaineering um, athletes that I've worked with. But again, this will be um, Everest for the first time, which will be fun. It'll be great. I'm fully confident in his ability to do it, and I'm fully confident in his ability to feel good going up. Um, as most mountaineers know, it's all about, not all about, but your ability to come down fatigued, the load on the legs, um, and that type of work and cognitive awareness, freshness to make good decisions on your return down is the, um, is the bigger challenge for many athletes. And so we're working on that. We're working on adjusting to altitude and adapting to it, which is applying a variety of different things theories and in the uphill athlete there's a lot of um, blogging and discussion around that the best approach but um, I have a little bit of a different situation because there's a lot of helicoptering in going on with this one in September and so it's a quick hit to altitude so we're working around that and then also the rucking rucking to me is a big component of high mountain high mountain mountaineering because your ability to to again 
um, work with the oxygen that you have and your efficiency in processing that and still having a performance outcome. Um, although most guided high-end tours up Everest, you're not carrying anything <laughs> besides your body, but your ability to ruck with a good amount of weight and make you better at fatigued um, hiking, trekking in limited oxygen, maybe even 10,000, 12,000 feet, but with 30, 40, 50 pounds on your back, um, surely makes the experience more positive once you're up in the big mountains. So hope that answers that question, but also um, provides a little bit of uh, insight with regards to the training. All right, let's jump into one more email here, and then I will dive into the 50K training plan next phase. Dear Chris, simply put, the Weekly Word podcast has become my favorite. Go-to resource for all things ultra-endurance. You know, I always have to read these intros because uh, just to give you guys a good sense of <laughs> what the background is of the athlete. But of course, it helps reading how much <laughs> you guys like the podcast. Um, your wealth of knowledge and honest, transparent approach to living and thriving as a modern athlete are so refreshing, particularly now, today, that we are inundated with so much information about health and fitness. That I appreciate, and I also like that term, modern athlete. Um, that brings about a lot of thinking for me, because as a modern athlete, or we went pro in something other than sports, modern athlete, um, I think that's a term that I, I'll ruminate on a little bit more. Um, Learning best practices, let alone understanding how to adapt those practices to oneself is no simple task. Thank you for being awesome, for being you, for being so many people's North Star when it comes to these serious questions that we as endurance athletes all face. Sincerely, thank you. I have a question for you. It's a little bit long-winded, but I've tried to include details as necessary for your assessment. If you have time to get this, get to this, thank you in advance. So... Yes, um, a lot of these questions I sort of just read off the bat. As you all can tell, I don't prep these. So I'm just going through a list of email questions I have. And if I can provide value, I do. If not, I guess I'm just reading. I loved your recent training plan tips for 50Ks. I'm currently working my th way through a trio of desert 50Ks. I've completed two of three. The third is about six weeks away. And things are going okay. Could be better, could be worse. But I do sense my body is getting worn down. Well, yeah. So that's 350Ks. Um, I'm wondering how, many, how much time. I've completed two of three. The third is about six weeks away. It doesn't say the other one. Um, I can't seem to shake a little, shake a little niggle after a little nigger. Um, one week, it's a flash of patella tendonitis. The next week, it's a sore ankle. Then it's a tight adductors. Then my hamstrings. Then some swelling of the knees. I've not sustained a serious injury in nearly a year, and all of these flare-ups come and go. My sports medicine doctor has evaluated me, x-rayed me, and my chassis is structurally sound. According to the doctor, <laughs> or according to you? according to you or what is standard in this sport that's a good another question to ask yourself just that's my first reaction there um i've worked with many athletes who thought they've been chassis integrated but um they find that they could do a lot more and it does have a huge effect on how they avoid injuries but 
that's neither here nor there. Yet, the niggles persist. It seems mostly muscle-based. Things are tight and tired. I take salt baths. I hope that's Epsom salt, not just general table salt. Uh, I foam roll, I stretch, I ice. Nothing thus far has proven to be the silver bullet. I can tell you one thing that's the silver bullet. That's called rest. <laughs> and I, I don't say that flippantly. I just wonder, based off of your interest, to do 350Ks in a short period of time, and if it's risking future ability to do, let's say, another 50K or go longer or go faster, I would wonder if it, the third one is really that important. Now, you sent this to me February 11th, so this might already be after the fact, but um, it's something I would surely contemplate if the third one is really that important and if you maybe take a break. Oh, you write down here. I understand the easy answer here is take a break. <laughs> um, FYI, I'm currently running about 30 to 35 miles a week. Okay, nothing too crazy. That's a mix of slower short runs, long mixed runs, and interval work. Well, what's long mixed runs and interval work? A mix of slower short runs. I run about 70% trails. Great. 30% road. Okay. I understand the easy answer is take a break. Listen to your body. 350Ks in five months, there it is, is a lot for the body to handle. Agreed. These races include a flare amount of slick rock, which I found to be especially abusive on the legs. Yes, I'm, a, I'm doing my best to not be too hard on myself, but I worry about resting excessively. Well, <laughs> there, there, there's something right there that you might want to look into. And let me just make sure I'm reading ahead a little bit to make sure I'm not just going to repeat myself. My, body, my, my lower body never feels fresh during training runs. Not a good sign. I feel like I need rest, reset of sorts. For me, excessive rest is about three consecutive days of no running. I don't feel efficient. All right. Well, we're on a bigger issue here, and I'm not even going to read the last paragraph before I jump into this. Um, so the challenge with rest is because we get so, and I've talked about this, the fog of fatigue. When we get so tired and we get so familiar with being tired, achy, um, flat, uh, niggles, constant niggles, we don't know what feeling fresh is like anymore. And our body is in a constant state of trying to find steady state, homeostasis. It wants to continue doing what it's doing because you're forcing it to do what it's been doing. So it'll work to be efficient in that place. It will numb you. It will numb your sensations. It will numb your highs and lows and feeling fresh and invigorated to being truly fatigued. So instead, you're in this gray zone and not necessarily like I talk about with heart rate or performance, but in sort of sensations from the training. And three consecutive days of rest is not enough. <laughs> A week or two off, off is going to make a world of a difference. And coming out of the fog and seeing the sun and the forest and the colors and the beauty is a good um, way to describe what you, where you are right now, most likely. Again, I don't know you that well, but most likely. And that working towards an event, again, just to finish it, just to do it, just to check the box, you're not going to have the performance that I'm sure you're capable of in a 50K if you were fresh, if you were rested. 
this training that you're doing, if you're averaging this, and you're doing the trails and the roads, and you've been done 250Ks already in five months, well, your fitness is clearly there. Now it's a question of freshening up. Now it's a question of performing at your best and seeing what you can do with the engine you've built. You're not going to build more of an engine by training more. Instead, you're just going to keep that engine suppressed and not being able to pull all the horsepower out of that engine. And rest allows you to do that. You've built an engine. Now, it might not be your best engine and might not be an engine you will, will be satisfied with currently, but it is the engine you've currently built. And by doing 30 to 35 miles per week and the training you've been doing, that's not enough to make it that much stronger, that much better. So instead, I would highly recommend resting it so that A, now I, I'm, I'm assuming this 50K is this weekend because that's about six weeks of when you wrote this. Um, but the beauty there is that the rest will allow you to then squeeze out everything you can out of the engine you've currently built. And I've talked about this on the podcast with many athletes and in many scenarios, whether it's triathlon or running or cycling or bigger performances or whatever it is, swimming. If your body is like a sponge and as you absorb all this water training, the sponge gets more and more saturated. And in order to get the most water out of that sponge, you have to let it sit and then squeeze all of it out of there so they can absorb more after. We want to make it absorb better, grow stronger, better, faster, stronger, higher, whatever. And your ability to do that is compromised when you always sort of stay at this, in this gray zone of training, performance, sensation, adaptation. Training in general, performance in general is, is stress training plus rest, right? We've all heard this. Stress plus rest equals performance gains. So stress is the training. Stress is the racing of these 50, 50, 50Ks, excuse me, stumbling. But rest here is the important piece to absorb the work that you've done. You've put the engine back together. You've started from scratch. You've taken the engine apart. You rebuilt it. But now you're not putting any gas into it. You're not allowing it to perform in order to, to really reap the rewards of what you've done. So yes, rest is clearly the answer here. And the other part here is niggles are niggles for a reason. They're your body telling you something is up. I need rest or pay attention to me. I'm giving you a signal. Pay attention to me. Let me know. Help me or address me. And that is rest. Does what I'm describing sound typical to you? Yes, very typical to me, very typical to many athletes that come to me who then I actually reduce their training volume and give them more rest. I have an athlete currently, he's doing a double Ironman, so two Ironmans back-to-back, -back, one on Saturday, one on Sunday, in two different countries in Europe in, uh, in a matter of 48 hours. So a pretty cool event, a pretty cool logistical thing he's doing. It's Ironman Sweden and Ironman Denmark. One's on Saturday, one's on Sunday. So we're getting ready for that. And his training in the past has been all about maximum volume and maximum pushing. For me to convince him to take a rest day, an off day, a recovery week has been very difficult. 
but I know his performance gains and his growth and his new level of fitness, his new platform of fitness that he will gain from this will be dramatic because rest will allow for the performance gains, the peak performance, stress plus rest. Um, do you have any suggestions on how I can train recover differently over the next few weeks? Yeah, do nothing. And I know, again, I'm not trying to sound flippant here, but doing nothing is part of the discipline of being an athlete. Are you training or are you exercising? When you don't take rest, you're exercising. You're not going into the training with intention, with purpose, with clarity. If you have intention for the training, there will be rest built in there. If you have purpose with the training and how you go about it, and you have the athlete's mindset, you have rest built in there. And if you have clarity about your desired outcome, about your goals, about your North Star, about where you're heading with this training, then rest will not distract you from that clarity of purpose, from that outcome that you're heading towards. Because you know that rest is just helping you continue down that road towards your purpose, towards your North Star, towards beyond the goals today, but for the goals in the future, right? The ability of a North Star too, and the clarity of purpose and purpose in general, is that you don't constantly reevaluate what kind of athlete you are as you're getting fitter. I have this conversation with a lot of athletes and a lot of newer athletes to me. Let's set our goals and our definitions <clears throat> of the outcome, desired outcome now. Because when you get fitter and when your confidence grows and you see the results and your ability to do longer races or longer training days, you start readjusting your goals and your expectations in your mind because you have a daily or a weekly reinforcement on how you're getting fitter. So then come event day, come race day, and you do the event way beyond or at your satisfaction of what you defined way back when we started, becomes less invigorating, becomes less meaningful, becomes less valuable to you and your psyche and your confidence because you now, because of your training and because of your gradual improvement, feel that you're fitter, better, stronger than what you originally wanted as the outcome of the event. And so if we constantly live in that mode, we're never satisfied with the 50K, with the Ironman, with the half Ironman, with the 100 miler, with whatever adventure, the half trail marathon, with the Olympic distance triathlon, with what the turkey trot 5K, because we never pause and realize, wow, when I started this training and I wrote out my intentions and desired outcomes and my vision for this event, and I've exceeded that, now I just recover quickly and on Monday I'm ready to go again, I would have never thought that was possible. And so therefore, now that I'm in this place, I don't evaluate my performance that I just had this past weekend the same way. And that's not fair to the work that you've done and the, the, the discipline and the patience and the commitment that you showed to it. And so that's another example here for this person is if you're an athlete, because you have that purpose, and if you would have said to, if, to yourself six months ago, a year ago, that you're going to do 350Ks in five months, and this is my performance, or these are my outcomes, and you've achieved them all or exceeded them, be happy with that. 
And that will also allow you to accept your recovery and rest weeks better. Because again, you know you're on the path on what you set out originally to do versus as you're going along, continuously moving the goal and moving the outcome and the object ahead of you. And that's what I would recommend. Um, as well as how, how I ought to recover reset after this race. I think I've addressed that. I've been eyeing a 50 miler in August. Oof. But my participation is totally dependent on how my body and mind feel after this upcoming 50K. So it's end of March right now. I'm assuming you're having that 50K right now. Maybe this weekend, maybe next weekend, maybe it was last weekend. I would highly recommend, fully recommend two weeks off. Reset, reground yourself, readjust your mind to your next goals and maybe take some notes and some stock and inventory into what you've achieved and how you want to train differently for the 50 miler. Maybe write out your training plan or some gratitude or some um, different inputs that you want to have for the next buildup. But again, like I talked about in another podcast, separate this buildup and this outcome and this achievement and this pride and confidence of what you've achieved and then give yourself a full reset. Let go of the fitness. It's not going to go anywhere. Trust me. Two weeks off will not, you will not be that far removed from what your fitness is. But it will take those niggles away. It will allow you to sort of exhale your body physically, mentally, and spiritually to reset, reground itself, reset that purpose, reset that intention for the training until August. That means if you take most of April off, let's say the second half of April, those two weeks, you start running easy. But I would say 10 to 15 miles the first week, then maybe 20 to 25 miles the next week to just keep it below your average on a chart in training peaks or whatever, it should look pretty clear that this is where you finish the race. This is where you reset and allow yourself to rebuild and regenerate and come back stronger for May, June and July training 12 weeks plus um, three months to get back up to the 50 miler training and distance and so forth. So that's a long answer to that question. Uh, uh, email question, but there's a lot in there that applies to so many that overlook the value of recovery and rest and listening to your body in a different way. Like the fact that you're even writing out niggle after niggle and I can't seem to shake it. And the fact that you're writing out, I understand the easy answer here is take a break. And for me, excessive rest is three consecutive days of no running. <sighs> That's exactly the discomfort you should be leaning into um, and understanding what's on the other side of that might be something you've never explored. What happens on day four and day five of rest of feeling, wow, I slept nine and a half hours last night and I feel itching and ready to go today. And yes, there is a sense of anxiety and impatience with it the first few days because you're taking your body out of its routine, out of what you've created as almost unhealthy habits of just training to train, right? And that's what we talk so much about here. So again, this is a big topic and I always bring it up with regards to recovery and rest and freshness because it's so important for all of us. It's important for me. Um, I'm lucky to have a, a format with regards to kids 
and time with and without kids that I, how I train. And so therefore there are recovery days and weeks and lighter loads built in there. But I used to be like this, not like this quite in this sense in the past, but my big weeks, I would have a hard time to letting go of that feeling that accomplished and that good about the training and just having done a monster week and feeling really fit. But that's also the difference there. Feeling really fit versus feeling tired and niggles. I never felt tired and niggles. Um, maybe on the back end of a big two, three week stretch where I knew I had a recovery or a rest week coming, that could be. I shouldn't say never. But I always knew I was not far or I can see out there on my training plan or also in my head how much longer until a rest week. And to me, a rest week would be at least a 50% reduction in volume and at least two days off per, for that week. So let's say I was doing a 24-hour training week and I would go to 12 hours, which is a big drop, and instead of one rest day every week, which I always have a rest day every week, is two rest days. So it really reset me. And sure, I was a little disconnected rebuilding the, the following week back to a two, three week build. But that would go away after two, three workouts. I say to a lot of athletes that give yourself about 72 hours back into training and you'll laugh. You'll shake your head going, and I was complaining I was doing too little because the volume and the right stimulus will quickly pull you back into, all right, we're back to training, training, not just, right, going through the motions. So, all right, we'll get to the 50K training plan next. All right, so here we go on the next phase of our 50K training plan, and we're almost done. I would say we will have some rest coming after this phase. So this carries us through weeks, well, probably looks like uh, 6 through Last time went 6 through 12. This is probably like 12-ish. Depends on how many recovery weeks and days you've built in here. Which after end of any 3-4 week phase here, I would surely recommend a recovery week. Which I am discussing here for this next phase anyway. But I would say we're about 4, 5, 6, 7 weeks out of the race here. So we had the first 12, yeah, so about 20 weeks, 15, yeah. So, but all these concepts, of course, can be shortened um, and applied to however you need for your racing. So just a recap from last time that we were at a, at, um, a variety of different concepts in weeks 6 to uh, 11, 5 to 8-ish. I know that sounds confusing, but again, I was applying it on how you have a recovery week in there as well as uh, how big you're building the full lead-up, 16 weeks, 20 weeks, whatever that is. But concepts can still be scribbled down either way. Last time we were at long run was alternating three hours, five hours, four hours, five hours. So three, five, four, five. We were doing leg speed was bounding and turnover based. Our easy and shorter days were 60 to 75 minutes. Our post long run was speed work. Our changing speed day was fast with Z2 recovery. We did a little bit of strength and core and um, we didn't really have any cross training. <clears throat> so 
We also last time included that Mondays were a recovery day or off day. So this time we're adding another layer and component upon the training plan. And that is one, simulation weekends. And two, we're going to add some cross training and a little bit more load in different ways. So now we have simulation weekends. Simulation weekends, sim weekends as I call them, means you're getting pretty close to the distance based off the 50k, so 30 miles, in a shorter time window. So I would recommend we're up to 20-ish, 22, maybe even 24 miles, right? 24 miles for the average mid-pack, front of the pack, not winning, but front uh, 30% of the race is about uh, a um, four-hour run for a training day, and um, but you should be thinking that that five hours, five-ish hours gets you about 22 to 24 miles. So let's say we do a 24-miler on a Saturday and we wake up early in the morning, or if you are that good with your training and you feel that connected and absorbing the work we've done, you could get up, let's say, on a Saturday and do five hours from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m., get your whatever that nets you. If that only nets you 22 miles, so be it. If that nets you 25 miles, so be it. And then you go home, you shower, you fuel, you recover, you watch a movie, you get your legs up, you just let your body recover, not stretching, not doing other stuff, but just truly shut it down, continue to hydrate, continue to fuel, not overeating, but just, you know, making sure that you're fueled, replenished. And then in the afternoon, so let's say you're home, done, cleaned up, first few calories in by noon, I would say at four o'clock, you head out and do those last six, seven, eight miles. Now, in a matter of 12 hours, right, 6 a.m. start, um, and then 4 p.m. start, and it's not going to take you much more than two hours to do that eight miles, or I hope less, um, so within 12 hours, you just did your 50K. Now, not all of us have the flexibility to take a weekend day with family and work and life um, the requirements, activities to do that. So let's say you would do that 24-miler on a Saturday and then early Sunday morning, again, short time window, wake up, and I would do that six to seven to eight miles with what's remaining to the 30 um, a little bit more aggressively then because you had more rest. But that's what a sim looks like. You could also sim it Friday night. You do 10. Let's say you come home from work and do 10 miles then on trails. It's got to be trails. You want to simulate the conditions. Now, you might not have sim uh, be able to simulate the conditions after work on a Friday. So you get 10 in on soft trail or soft terrain. Trail is what I mean. It might not be the elevation change of your race, but then Saturday morning. So again, let's say you get home from work, it's five o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock. Get in that 10, hour and a half, two hours, right? And now you have 20 miles early sun, Saturday morning. Get up early, get up at four. Race time for a lot of 50Ks is 6 a.m., 5 a.m., 7 a.m. So get up, have that race breakfast simulate all the motions, simulate having your car packed, simulate everything you want to eat and drink and prep and have ready for race day. Make sure that headlamp works. 
do all the motions. Go out, get up at four. Get running at six. Get that remaining 20 miles done. So that's, let's say, four to five hours. You're done at 10 a.m. And then you have, you're done. That's it. Simulation done. 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. Eat. Um, clean yourself up. And hopefully you'll feel good enough that afternoon to stand around the sidelines of the kids' soccer game, of the baseball game, of the lacrosse game, whatever it is. So keep that type of simulation in mind. Now you have Sunday for some in some of these cases. Um, on Sunday, if that's the simulation weekend and you do have the day open because you got it done on a Friday into Saturday or you got it done all in a Saturday, that's where I would ruck. So ruck is rucksacking and backpacking, trekking, hiking, all in one word. And I, it always, usually, not always, usually, <laughs> it usually entails a backpack. It almost always does. And has some weight in it. I would start with 15 to 25 pounds and go for a nice steady 90 to 120 minute hike, walk. Um, I would change terrain. I would uh, do it on trails. I wouldn't just do hill repeats like up and down a long hike. If you can find a rolling hike or a steady hike in the hills or mountains or forest where you live, if it is, if it's flat but it's in a forest, so be it. But nonstop, 90 120 minutes carrying 15 to 25 pounds in a backpack and again durability joints legs uh, low heart rate but you're moving it is adding to the load so very beneficial on a sim weekend that is now the other part we talked about that i jumped over that four hours that you're doing or five hours that 20 miler after you're doing saturday morning post the friday after work run Really be good about making sure that's in a simulated terrain that you might be in. You might not be able to simulate the temperatures because it might be further away and you can't do that, but definitely try to get the altitude net gain and elevation change in so that you can, again, get a good sense of the trials and tribulations you'll be going through on a 50K event day. So that's simulations. Um, So in this next four uh, four uh, week phase, I would probably alternate the weekends um, four hour run for the long run, then the sim weekend, then four hour run again, and then a six hour run. So now that last one, it could be a simulation again, that six hour, the fourth weekend here, a six hour run. Um, but it's also going to put you very close to the time it'll take you to do the 50k. But I wouldn't overthink how fast or slow or what pace, I would instead just go out and spend six hours on my feet. So that might mean a lot of hiking. That might mean a lot of breaking up the runs and making sure I'm keeping it real easy on the hills and inclines and longer climbs if you live in that type of terrain. And just if that six hours gets you 25 miles, 22 miles, so be it. Right? But you're spending six hours on your legs, continuous movement, fueling, hydrating, just getting that mental time done too, spending that time out there. Um, a six-hour one like this, um, I actually remember, uh, rem- recommend um, a three out and three back if you can create that. Again, getting to a far point and um, hitting that at three hours and turning around and heading home 
there's a mental component and a um, simulation component in there that's actually quite helpful and beneficial. So hopefully that's not all uphill for three hours out and then all downhill, but you guys get what I mean. So there's a long weekend, four sim, four six. And so now we're um, moving to the leg speed, which was bounding and turnover based, but now we want to do hill repeats. Hill repeats entail 60 to 75 seconds of very, very steep terrain. You can start at 45 seconds, but really explode up. This is not heart rate based in any way. You want to explode up, completely blow the heart rate through the roof. But again, it's 45, 60, 75 seconds, and you walk back down. I wouldn't run. If you do run and your legs are durable enough for that type of downhill on the steepness, be sure to take a 30, 40 second rest at the bottom before you start the next one. It should be hard enough, intimidating enough, fatiguing enough, blow your heart rate up enough that you dread this, that you want that 30 to 40 seconds at the base and you have to almost overcome yourself psyche, psychologically to do the next one hard enough, explosive enough, uh, uh, explosive enough and strong enough. So find that type of hill. Hopefully that's dirt two, not a trail, a treadmill. This is 5% or more minimum on the incline. 4% is a good hill repeat, but we want, again, explosive uphill, painful, powerful work. Um, again, prefer that outside because even the walking downhill gets the hips and the hip flexors and the knees and the feet prepared for the downhill portion of most any 50K um, in hilly, mountainous, rolling terrain. Um, now you can do bounding uh, alternating weeks on the hills too. So you do your bounding exercises. Remember maximum airtime and how to do that. But you do that on an incline. Again, calf recruitment, explosive power, big boosting, bounding steps, but uh, going up a hill for 30, uh, for uh, 60 to 90 seconds can even be longer. It could even be two minutes of steady bounding uphill work. Um, so again, bounding on the incline so that push off is also overcoming gaining um, uphill momentum and distance versus just maximizing airtime across steady or flat terrain. Um, where are we? Uh, easy shorter runs were 60 to 75 minutes. This week, let's go shorter. Let's use the recovery, 45, maybe 60 minutes. We want less volume of easy running this week. There's no reason to also add more time. There's plenty of time with the long runs and the speed and the leg turnover and the other stuff that we're doing. We don't need to add easy time. Um, post long run was speed. Now we're adding that rucking. So let's say after the four hour run the first weekend, I would do speed. After the sim, I already said we're rucking. After the four hour run again, speed. And then after the six hour long day, long march, um, I would ruck again just to alternate the two. Same 15 to 25 pounds. So in the pack, uh, changing speed was fast and then zone two recovery. Now I would like to see, or I recommend and usually um, prescribe longer tempo running. Uh, tempo, zone three, um, if you don't have either a sense for either of those, I recommend it should be uncomfortable. It should be on the verge of 
I'm not sure I can hold this pace, but I'll stay here for now. That type of effort, that type of um, running speed that you do um, alternating with zone two recovery. The time for those start at like 15 minutes on at that zone three tempo, uncomfortable sensation, five minutes zone two recovery. And let's say you do three rounds of that 15 plus five. So that's an hour of rotations. Um, let's say 10 and f- 10 to 15 minutes warm up and then 10 minutes cool down. So that's quickly an hour and 20 of a workout. But over these four or five weeks, you want to increase that to 20 minutes and then even up to 25 minutes on at zone three, um, tempo uncomfortable with five minutes. The recovery always stays five minutes zone two recovery. And we've discussed zone two recovery with it being seeing the zone two number and then starting the five minute clock, not as soon as you come off the zone three work. Now you might not be able to get to zone uh, to 25 minutes at it. So start at 15 and maybe the next time through you do 18 and then the final time you do 22 or you go 18, 22, 25, or you go 15, 17, 20, whatever it is, but longer steady state work at an uncomfortable pace, tempo, good solid effort with five minute recoveries. Um, We're doing our explosive intensity, high heart rate work on the hill repeats. So we want our steady state on these long intervals. Um, These are on, can be on pavement, um, but are on uh, steadier, faster, flatter terrain. And then uh, strength and core was once a week. Now we want to add a second one a week of mainly core and body weight strength week work. We're not looking for much strength now. We're looking to stay integrated chassis integrity and body weight strength. And finally, we can add some cycling, swimming, yoga, cross training this week so that when you're um, super tight or you, let's say after those hill repeats, let's say you do those on Tuesday morning. Um, maybe that afternoon you do some easy swimming or some easy cycling to just shake out the legs. Maybe um, on the morning of you're doing on Wednesday, you're doing core and some easy uh, uh, core work. Maybe in the morning you do some yoga, right? Um, So there's places to build that in. Even on um, Sundays after the hike, you could do some yoga or some swimming just to give the body some active recovery and a break. So the way I listed that, that's around 16 hours of training. It's a minimum of about 12 and it brings us up to 16. So these are some pretty big weeks and you can see that this is basically our peak phase of training. Um, What does this week, for example, look like? So let's say we say Monday is rest. Tuesday, I would do those hills to come into the week um, fresh and explosive and ready to go from the rest day. Now, you could do those in the morning and do some cross training in the afternoon. Uh, Wednesdays, I would do a morning shakeout jog, that 45 minutes, easy. Um, And then in the PM, I would do core or body weight strength. And then post-core, I would do short 20, no more than 30 minutes, but I would focus more on 20 minutes fast running. So let's say you've done your core and body weight strength, which by the way, core and body weight strength now includes bridge, standing and kneeling founders, Russian twists, 
sit-ups, uh, hand-release push-ups. Um, you can do heel touches, air squats. Air squats are always good. Plank walk-ups, uh, poor man's leg curl. Love those for hamstring work and, and glute work. Windshield wipers for more core and anti-rotation and rotational stuff to keep that inverse movement of the core going. Because running, keep in mind, our arm is going forward and our shoulders are turning one way, but our hips are often going the other way or about to turn the other way. So we want that anti-rotational integrity the whole time, right? Our one arm is going forward and yeah, our hips are coming, but they're about to turn the other way. And our core carries, our midsection carries so much of that rotational force and turn and integrity with it. So yeah, so I said uh, core and speed run on that Wednesday. So that core work will take maybe 40 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes, depends on how much you're putting in there, but really focused, really powerful, really connected. Then within two, three minutes of finishing the core, either you get on a treadmill or you run outside the gym, 30 minutes, go, 20 minutes, go, stay uncomfortable, push it, have fun. This is the day, this is the, the workout where you can just go run. And you'll be pretty tired from the hills the day before anyway. Um, Thursday, I would do that zone three, tempo, uncomfortable, interval, steady state stuff with that Z2 recovery. Fridays, I would do that other core session and an easy run post. Or you could do a morning core, 30 to 40 minutes. And in the afternoon, a sh shakeout jog or some cycling or some swimming or yoga. That's a great day for some cross training. Saturday is our long run day, as we saw. And then the only thing I'm missing is what do we do for the speed work now? Well, now we want to work on truly our endurance. So on the four days, we ran four on Saturday, four-ish, if it's 420, if it's four and a half, if it's 410, whatever. Um, I wouldn't go too close to five because that puts us really into a longer recovery mode that we've built up to. Um, I would warm up for maybe 10 minutes and then run a solid 40 minutes uncomfortably fast. And the uncomfortably fast off of a four-hour run the day before or, um, yeah, means that we're not necessarily going fast by pace or the, the Garmin, what it's telling us. It's all about leg turnover. You just want to keep those legs turning over fast, staying uncomfortable, and really requiring your body to stick to the fundamentals, oxygen uptake, posture, form, how your feet are landing. And then whenever you feel yourself getting settled, turn them over faster. Not because you're digging with your arms and your body to run faster, but just think, let me wind up my leg speed more and more and find a place where I can hold this leg speed and, and maintain it for 30, 40, 50 minutes even. And then let's say a 10 minute cool down. So nothing longer than 60 to 70 minutes of work here. Now, if you are extremely fit and you've been doing this for a while, the, the furthest I would take that is maybe a two-mile warm-up, then six miles at a strong pace, that uncomfortable pace, and then a two-mile cool-down. So that, you know, that six miles turns into about 50, 55 minutes of leg turnover and, and, and effort, speed, but really two miles of warm up is super easy and the two miles cool down is super easy. So again, not much different than what I just described, but you know, you can put it into mileage that way. 
maybe you build up, let's say, from three miles to five miles and so forth, right? Um, on the post four days. Remember, post sim days, we have the um, rocking. And post the six hour, we have the rocking. So that's our four weekends right there. And then we'll close it out with a recovery week. So now we're on the back end of this, we have a recovery week. So the way I just described it, that can go up to 16 hours if we're doing all the things that I was talking about and uh, on the far end of the time needed and a minimum of 12 hours. So last time we were seven to eight hours running, this time we're 10 to 12 hours of running. So again, we've increased it by another 20, 25%. So we need to be smart here. So that's why we come into a maximum recovery week. And that means two days off, that means we reduce that weekend run to two-ish hours. That means Sunday we just cross-train or go for a hike, but unloaded, no weight. That means Tuesdays we're 50% less on our hill repeats. So if you've been doing six, you go down to three. If you've been doing eight, et cetera, you go down to four. And we do reduce the bounding time, same thing. If you were bounding, reduce it by 50%. Like it should be dramatically less or Wednesday's core, and then nothing post-running, post-core. No speed, no easy, just do some core work, right? You could even do um, an easy spin or bike ride or swim post or pre-core on that Wednesday. But again, all easy motions, just keeping it clean. And then Thursday, 50% less of the zone three tempo time, right? So if you had worked yourself up to 20 minutes, you do only 10 minutes with five, still five minute recovery though. The recovery does not reduce in 50 by 50%. So now that, you know, hour and a half zone three tempo intervals, you know, three rotations, um, turns into three times 10 minutes or three times eight minutes if you only made it up to 16 minutes or whatever. So 50% reduction in the workload. Um, so if you got even up to 25 minutes, great, but now you're down to three times 12 minutes with five minute recovery. So you're under an hour on this run, okay? Or you're, you know, with the cool down, you're an hour and five or whatever. So um, yeah, then Friday is off. So, and then you have Sunday is, you know, like we said, two hours and stuff. So that week should be quite comfortable and you should really trust that that week you're going to be feeling great come Sunday on that hike or you're just swimming easy cross training or going for an easy bike ride or doing nothing. If you need a third day off that week because life got in the way or you've been holding back on things and now some family commitments or some life work commitments are coming up, it's a great week to take a third day off. It's fine because we did all these weeks of work. So that takes us through 17 weeks of this training. I think we're three weeks out now, and we're going to go into the taper on uh, a podcast in about two, three weeks. All right. Let me know of questions on this. I'm glad to talk about them and go over them on the next two, three podcasts before we jump into the taper. All right. I hope that helps. And, uh, that was explained in the detail you need. All right, so there we have it for this week's Weekly Word Podcast, episode 101. You know, and in closing with all the questions I get and also the commentary I get in Training Peaks and in communicating with my athletes, the one thing I can't stress for all of you, whether you're coached by me or not, is know what you need. 
Know what you need in order to maximize the limited training time you have to be able to absorb the training that you're doing in order to have the best possible outcome for you in the now, right? And what I mean by that is that there are so many inputs we can add to our training program. There's so many thoughts and principles and necessary ingredients, as many would say, for a training plan that you can not only get overwhelmed, but you're constantly questioning if what you're doing is enough or what you're doing is correct or if I should be doing more or something of a different variety. The challenge here is we all went pro in something other than athletics. So the bigger overarching question is always, is what I'm doing, am I able to absorb it? What are the stresses in the rest of my day in life? And if I'm doing the training, am I just going through the motions? Or am I truly adapting, absorbing the training? And what I mean by that is if you have a busy day with family or career or travel or busy life or how your work is, or just in general, your day is exhausting, it fatigues you, your stress levels are high, your hormones are all over the place, your adrenals are shot, well then training strength, although you might think you need strength work, is a waste of your limited training time or then doing more hours or higher quality work is a waste of your training time because you're not going to absorb it. When you're already fatigued by life's other demands, this training is about what you can absorb. What is the minimum effective dose in order for you to have the maximum effective output, outcome, not output, for your limited training time. And so a lot of athletes struggle with this, but know what you need. Know what works best for you in the now. Am I getting ready for a 70.3? Am I getting ready for an Ironman? Am I getting ready for a 50K? Am I getting ready for a 100 miler? And I'm getting ready for a different type of ultra endurance adventure. What is it I need? And what is it that will strengthen my strengths, bring up my weaknesses, and then maximize my training time? Yes, it is something I struggle with all the time because athletes always want to find more concepts and principles that they think they need for themselves, right? A lot of the literature and studies and experts and so forth out there are always claiming and saying based off of results, based off of labs, based off of data, that this is what you might need. But that's not always the case for you because do those lab results, do those experts, do those uh, masters in the field for sure that have done the physiological research and seen the result, do they know your work schedule? Do they know your life schedule? Do they know how old you are? Do you know? Do they know your um, sports background? Do they know the volume that you have? Do they know the hours that you can train per week? Do they know the, how you can recover for the week? Do they know? I mean, all that. So again, what works for you is what's so key here. And that's why I keep harping on the coaching and not to blow smoke up the coach's butts here, but more about find the work 
and the training plan and the coaching that works for you. And many can't afford a coaching. I get that totally fine. Um, one, you can always set up a consult with me and I'll gladly sit down for an hour on the phone with you. Yes, I do charge for that. But if you don't want to pay for coaching, I'm glad to help you with that. But that's, that's besides the point. More importantly, understand what works for you. Understand what you've observed in your training journal and your notes. Yes, there's so many concepts and it gets overwhelming and confusing and you're wondering, well, am I and should I do what works? So can't harp on that point enough. But anyway, have a great week. I'm going to be back on 102 in uh, a few days. So keep sending the questions, keep sending the concepts, keep sending these um things that make you wonder if it's applicable to you, all that, all these questions are so great. And I just keep banging them out. As you can see, I don't even read them as much as I start reading them on the podcast. And as you heard by a question today, sometimes they're not really, they're not really questions. I just saw the subject line and I thought that would be the question. So have a great week. Um, I'm excited to talk a little bit more about Qatar Quest next week. There's more information coming out. All right. Thank you always for listening. Thank you so much for your support. I don't know all the rate and review stuff um, that I hear on other podcasts with on iTunes or you know all that stuff. I have no idea. I don't know what I'm doing. This is not a pr- big production, but just keep sending me email questions and inquiries with regards to what you would like discussed on the podcast. That's enough for me to know that there's people listening. So have a great week.